A powerful song, and it is all about him. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, this morning as we continue our un-series. Uh, as we look at um, John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 13 through 25. It's good to see you guys, 1115 last week. Uh, I uh, was just really testing Chris Whaley. Um, Gave him about two minutes notice and said, you got a sermon ready. And he did. He stepped up and did it for you guys. I was in the back watching. It was awesome. He did really good. Um, I uh, asked him a few minutes ago, you got one ready? You go? Ready to go? And he's like, no, I'm not going today. So he's not participating with us today. But Chris, I do appreciate so much that last minute uh, step in last week. Uh, Missed being uh, with you guys, but certainly um, had an opportunity to listen. And and, um, you guys did good. And you remembered that the battle belongs to the Lord today. We are continuing that series where we are trying to unwind and unravel, if you will, some things that um, get in our way, rob us of the joy of becoming that person that God has created us to be. And as we do, I think we're going to make some discoveries that are going to be helpful for all of us, but also encouraging for all of us too, because we can do these things if we will, get serious about what it is that we're called to do. Someone said one time that life can be like trying to herd cats on roller skates through a maze of tangled spaghetti. Entertaining, perplexing, and a little bit saucy. And at the end of the day, um, yeah, life is that way. Life is a little bit crazy. But this morning, we're going to talk about you and who you are and what you can be. And we're going to put that under the microscope of what God has called you to and see how it works. The title of Bible study is simply this, you're unique just like everybody else. You're unique just like everybody else. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, you know, you're unique. Go ahead. And now, look back at them again and say, you know, I'm kind of unique too. (laughs) You guys are sad. Um, We are uh, jumping in last week, uh, or uh, yes, well, not for you guys, but last week, um, heard us talk about something that I I really, you know, I don't know. The longer I do this, the more I ought to be smarter, but... Just to let you know, the older I get, the dumber I get. And I, uh, I should have thought when we talked about anger um, that somehow I was going to shake from the tree every angry, angry person out there that watches this online. Um, wow, some of you guys got some anger issues. <sighs> um, and, and the audacity to say uh, that I would suggest to you that you don't have to live life angry. How angry that made some people. Uh, Pretty funny, actually. Um, Really sad. Uh, But I meant what I said. You can live life unflustered. As a matter of fact, if you're going to be a follower of God, you have to live life unflustered. You can't spend all your time being angry. And we're going to build on that idea this morning uh, just a little bit more. We're going to jump into a passage of Scripture that you probably are familiar with. You probably have heard a number of times, and you probably blow past it pretty quickly. But we're going to unpack it um, verse by verse in just a few minutes. Uh, but as I begin, I want to tell you about an uh, anniversary party that was taking place. It was the 75th wedding anniversary party. 
The man was 100. His wife was 98. And so during the course of the evening, um, they were talking and kind of sharing together, and people were asking them questions. And someone asked the 100-year-old man, what is the secret of your longevity and good health? I mean, he's incredibly healthy. And he said, well, I'll tell you my secret. We've been married, as you know, for 75 years. And I promised my wife that when we got married, that for every quarrel we had, the loser of that fight would have to walk for five miles after it was over with. And then with a smile, he said, so I've been walking five miles a day for the last 75 years. Well, people laughed, they applauded, they appreciated what he said. And they said, well, how come your wife is as healthy as she is? He said, well, that's another secret. He said, because for 75 years, every single day that I've been on my five-mile walk, she's been following me to make sure I took every one of those miles in. <laughs> we, we are, uh, by nature, uh, distrustful of things. We're, by nature, um, always trying to, to win and get one leg up on something else. And we're trying our best to, to kind of win this battle called life. And it makes sense. But at the end of the day, if I were to say to you, do you really believe, do you really believe that you can be exceptional without exception? Do you believe it? See, because you're unique just like everybody else. I mean, look around this room. This room is full of unique people. Sometimes we act like being unique is a big deal. Well, I got news for you, and I hate to burst anybody's bubble or anybody's feel-good seminar, but being unique, you didn't do any work for that. God made you unique. You're unique, just like everybody else, which means you're just like everybody else, which kind of takes the fun out of being unique, doesn't it? And you're just not. But the real question for us is, can we be exceptional? And I want you to know you can be without exception. You can be exceptional. You can be so much more than you ever thought you could be. You can be so much more and rise above the things uh, that we deal with in life and live life at a different level. Now, uh, for a lot of you adrenaline junkies out there, and some of you really are adrenaline junkies, if I were to say to you, could you jump out of a perfectly good plane at 25,000 feet without a parachute or a wingsuit, um, could you do that? The answer is, yeah, you could do it. The real question is, could you live through it? And most of you say, no, that's suicidal. But I want you to know it's not anymore, especially if your name is Luke Atkin. See, Luke recently plummeted from an airplane at 25,000 feet without any kind of parachute. And he landed on a 100 by 100 foot net that was set up just for him, and he hit that net at terminal velocity 120 miles an hour. Can you imagine? That's kind of crazy. Um, and maybe even stupid, but the guy has a wife and four kids, which makes it even crazier, or may explain why he jumped out of the plane. But there's another angle to the story. Because Agnes was so sure that this stunt would work and that he could do this, that what he did is he got special permission to be able to jump out of planes and then pull the ripcord at 1,000 feet, which you have to have special permission to do. That's low. And he started at 100 by 100 with a target. 
And the more he practiced, the smaller and smaller he kept making the target. Eventually, he got the target to 10 feet by 10 feet and was jumping out of an airplane, hitting a 10 foot by 10 foot target. And after some 14,000 jumps, 18,000 jumps, I'm sorry, he decided it was time that he was ready to try to jump without a parachute and hit the bigger target. Now, he said for him it was easy. If he could hit a 10 by 10 target, he wasn't going to sweat that 100 by 100 foot target. And he did. And he made it. And that's nuts. But at the end of the day, we can relate to that because it seems to us sometimes that life is moving past us at terminal velocity. And by the way, it is. If you didn't know when you walked in, you're moving and living life at terminal velocity. You know why? Because you're going to die. One day you will die. And so life is passing you at terminal velocity. It's just flying by. And stuff is happening around us all the time. And there's so many experiences, so many things we can do, so many things to see, so many things we want to do. And, and sometimes it seems like life is just coming by so fast that we don't have time to focus on anything, do anything right, or do anything well. In other words, we have a hard time picking out a target and getting there. And I dare suggest to you that maybe the target, just maybe the target, and humor me on this, the target that we ought to be looking for is living on. Uncompromised, unconquered, unbeatable. I, I think that sometimes we should be able to recognize that when we start fine-tuning our life and practicing on hitting those targets, pretty soon those targets get easier and easier and easier to hit, and we don't even think about it anymore. And last week, when I suggested um, that we could live life and not be angry. And not only should we live life and not be angry, but that's what the Bible says, by the way. So to not do it that way would be called sin. That we are called to live unflustered lives. And so if you're flustered, hear me carefully, you're sin. You're sinning. And you're not honoring God, and you got to get that right. But today, I want to dare to suggest to you that not only can we add to that, and if we want to fine-tune that target a little bit more and a little bit more, not only can you live life unflustered, but you can start living life unshocked. And life doesn't have to seem so overwhelming. And life doesn't have to seem so crazy. And life doesn't have to seem like a battle you just can't win. See, the guy that jumped out of the airplane... I hated to use the story, but it made the point. But at the end of the day, he's crazy. I mean, he's extremely crazy. But I want you to know he's not exceptional. Because people in general are crazy. Don't believe me? Look across the room. We left the door open and the lunatics came in. I mean... I would love to look across this room and go, you guys are just so normal and so good and so kind, and here's what I can tell you. I'd be lying to you. Now you're crazy. Some of you are crazier than others, but definitely crazy. And how can we learn to live and unwind and untangle all that craziness that we have to deal with? Because you can. And the Bible helps you with that. And so what I want to do with this passage, and, and, 
is go through it, and I want to kind of unpack each thing and tell you some things about it. But when I do, I want you to see that it points out two struggle points that are very, very real for everybody. But the last point helps us know how to unravel it or at least take the first steps toward fixing it. And if we can do that, then we start getting to that point that we can live life unshocked. Now, hopefully that sounds like a pretty good deal to you. Not you're in for a long half hour. Uh, first thing I want you to see is simply this. Um, I want you to notice that the wrong thing happens in the right place. The wrong thing happens in the right place. Look at verse 13 through 17 of John 2. It says this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I'm going to stop for just a minute. I'm going to read the rest of it in just a minute. But I spoke last week about not being angry. And here's what you have to know about this part of Scripture. Jesus is not angry. This is not a sanctified temper tantrum. Jesus hasn't walked into the temple and seen what's going on and blown his lid and lost his cool and starts running everybody off. That's not what's happening here at all. How do we know that? Well, look back at verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. So in other words, get the picture. Jesus walks in. It's Passover time. He and the disciples come in, and he sees what's going on in the temple. And there's money changers, and there's animals, and it's really like a carnival. It's a zoo, and, and people have come to experience God, but they can't. And it's, it's just it's upside down, and, and no one's doing what they need to do. And the Bible very clearly says somehow, some way, he goes over and he grabs a rope. And as he looks out over this weirdness that he's seeing, he slowly begins to braid a whip. That's not a knee-jerk reaction. That's not a man who's out of control. That's not a man who has lost his ability to function or think. That's a man who knows exactly what he's doing, and it's calculated, and it's real, and it's on purpose. Jesus is not angry. He's being strong. He's taking care of business. He's speaking a language they can understand. And you know, in the aftermath of this, he's going to clear the temple. And these are going to be the same people that a few months from now, a few years from now, are going to kill him. So Jesus has already honed in on the fact that he knows who they are. He's speaking their language here. But he's not out of control at all. He knows very well what he's doing. And if you keep reading the passage, it says this, uh, to those who sold the doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The house of God, temple of God, it is the right place. And what has happened is the temple courts are full of crazies. (laughs) They have come in and they've turned it into a profit-making endeavor. They basically have taken the temple and they've decided that their agenda, they have a plan, they have an agenda of how it needs to be done better, and they have now taken the temple and just turned it all upside down and are doing things that that doesn't please God, that they ought not to be doing, uh, but they're now in control and there's been no one there to stop them. 
And so the crazies have run amok. They've actually decided that what they want to do in the temple is more important than what God needs to accomplish in the temple. And so making money, selling animals, exchanging coins, all of that is more important than anything that God might want to do. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. But what you have to understand about this passage, and it's easy to miss, is that this is the moment in John when Jesus walks into the temple. It is Passover, and he is there, and he does something that's absolutely phenomenal. He is reclaiming the temple. What you just read, what I just read to you in Scripture, is Jesus reclaiming the temple. See, the temple was originally built under God's instruction to be a place where God's presence would come and dwell among the people. But it had been years and years since that had happened. And sometimes in the big picture, the mosaic that we get in Scripture, sometimes we lose a side of the story, the bigness of the story. But we just come off Christmas time. So remember, at Christmas time after Jesus was born, uh, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple and dedicated him to the temple. You understand the significance of that moment, right? That was, in that moment, the first time that God's presence had been in the temple in years and years and years. In the form of a baby, when they stood in the temple, that's the first time that God's presence had been in the temple. Isn't that awesome? And then we fast forward and we read the account uh, as Jesus is a teenager. And Luke, as Jesus is a teenager and his parents uh, leave him. And they go back and they think that he's traveling with friends. And he's not. And for Joseph and Mary, uh, they lost the son of God. I mean, I don't know if you ever thought you were a bad parent or not, but did you ever lose God? They did. I mean, they lost him. They left him and they lost him. And they come back and they find that Jesus is sitting there and he's sitting there talking to the leaders of the temple. That's the first time that God's voice had been heard in the temple for years and years and years. Powerful, powerful moments in Scripture that sometimes we don't pay attention to. Because sometimes we forget what really is important and we forget what it is that God wants to do. And so this is the moment in Scripture that he reclaims the temple. This is the moment that he steps up and he says, you know what? This is my father's house and this is going to stop. See, there are people who are coming to the temple for the right reasons. The problem is they can't do the things that they're supposed to be doing at the temple because people are there doing business for the wrong reasons. The crazies have taken over the temple. They've got their own agenda. Stop for a minute. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to the things of God, what is your agenda? Are you doing things for the reasons that you think are best and doing things for the reason that you want to do them? Are you motivated and driven by doing things that God wants you to do for the reason that God wants you to do? And I want you to know that if you're going to live un, you've got to dance with that question. See, we talk about life change and transformation here from time to time, and one of the things I tell people in the transformation process, if you're going to transform, if you're going to become that person that God wants you to be, that the first step is you have to be honest with yourself and with God. 
God already knows your heart, so that shouldn't be a big deal. The hard part people have is being honest with themselves, being honest about who they are, what their reasons are, what their emotions are, what their motivations are. And here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you're not honest with yourself, you will never become the person that God wants you to be. You can't get there until you decide that you want to do God's agenda, not your agenda. Now, if I were to say to you, shouldn't everybody in the room want to do God's agenda? You're going to say, yes, of course, because to not do that would be crazy. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I agree. And yet here's what I know after a lot of years. Most people never become all they were created to be because they're never honest with themselves. It's always somebody else's fault. Always some circumstance. Always some issue. Always this. Always this. Always this. But never honest about themselves and taking responsibility for who they are before God so they can be who God wants them to be. And by doing that, they're making a conscious decision of robbing themselves of the joy of living for Jesus. Which is why people got mad last week when I said, you don't have to be angry. You can't stay angry. My people got ticked off. Can you imagine? People were ticked because I told them not to be angry. I guess I went from preaching to meddling just a little bit, didn't I? But God sees things that we don't. And God knows what he's doing. And God has a plan. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what is your agenda? Why are you here? What do you want? Are you really seeking God? You want something else? Are you really wanting God to do something spectacular in your life or you got some other agenda going on? What is it that you're wanting to do? And here's what I know. God is good. (laughs) And God sees things that we don't. And you know how I know that? Because he hasn't vaporized me yet. See, because if I got what I deserved, I'm just a smudge. But the same thing is true for you. See, God sees things that we don't. He knows things that we don't. He gets us to places because God looks at us and he sees what can and will be. And everything that he does in your life is pushing you forward to becoming that. If you will quit doing your agenda and let God do his. Second thing I want you to see is I want you to see the wrong question to the right person. Verse 18 to 22. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority To do all this. Now stop for a minute again there. You know why they said that, right? Because they knew what he did. They recognized what he did. They heard what he said. He ran them off. And then he said, you've taken my father's house. And turned it in some, some translations, a den of thieves. They heard what he said. Which is why I think the passage It's so interesting because crazy steps up and pushes back. You ever dealt with somebody that's just crazy? I mean, just slap back crazy. 
I mean, you know, you, you, you're just going back and forth with him. You're talking with him. And you realize, man, this, this person is just not here. And you say something they don't like, but you know you're right. And they push back. That's the way it is. Well, you said that. No, I didn't. Well, yeah, you did this. No, I didn't. And I mean, you realize in the middle of that, you're now walking into a crazy room, having a conversation with a crazy person, and everything in the crazy room is crazy. Crazy loves to push back, especially when crazy comes running into truth. And so in this particular case, they push back. In verse 19, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, this is not in Scripture, but I know he did it. You can ask him when you get there. His response back to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. I think he did this. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. I even think he pointed. Because Jesus is now in a conversation. By whose authority do you do this? You destroy this temple? I'll bring it back. It'll take three days. And they don't understand a thing he's saying because the next thing out of their mouth is, well, it took us 46 years. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from his dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They didn't recognize God. And he was standing right in front of them. How good are you at recognizing God? How good are you at recognizing the face of God? In the history of humanity, there have been two, three actors who have been outstanding. This has, again, come out of extensive research and voted on by a committee of one. Harrison Ford, he's pretty good. Sylvester Stallone, the Renaissance man. And William Shatner. <laughs> Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Admiral Kirk, depending on the movie, whether he's been demoted or not. He's brought great characters to life on television. The man has staying power. He's now 92 years old. He'll be back in town in just a few weeks. Tucked away in Star Trek V, which is the final frontier, William Shatner writes it, directs it, it's panned as one of the worst Star Trek movies ever. But see, I disagree. Because he understood something about the Star Trek series that no one else did. He dared to take Star Trek and Starship Enterprise and try to take the Starship Enterprise and take it to heaven. See, the storyline revolved around someone who stole the starship and tried to breach this gap so they could actually get to heaven and see God. And so it's an intriguing story. It's loaded with all sorts of spiritual stuff, some fantastic one-liners, but they get to what they think is God and outplays one of the most amazing scenes in all of theater history. Fortunately for you, we have it. Take a look at the screen. This starship could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? It could, yes! Then I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot! Excuse me. 
It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you've seen. And the scene continues to unfold, and then Spock steps up and says, but you never answered the question, what does God need with a starship? Because they were smart to figure out they weren't standing before God. Well, our culture doesn't understand that, do they? We create gods of our own making. We create gods of our own design. We create gods that we want to follow. And it never dawns on us for a minute that we might be missing out on who God really is. I love the line that Bones throws. You don't ask the Almighty for his ID. You don't have to. Because when you meet God, you'll know it. And when you meet God, he doesn't owe you anything else. But here's the question that stumbles through our brains and our hearts and causes us to deal with our own personal level of crazy. What does God have to do to get your attention? I mean, seriously, what else does he need to do to get you to kind of wake up and do what you're supposed to do? What is it that he needs to do next to kind of prove to you that he's in charge and on it and he's got your life well in hand. What does God have to do to get your attention? See, this is a shocking story because what we've determined is that the crazy people have taken over the temple. People can't connect with God anymore because the people are there and they've got their own agenda. And they can't get out of their own way because they've got their own agenda and they want to do their own thing. And they want to dictate to God how God needs to behave and how God needs to do things. They're inviting God to follow them instead of them following God. And on top of all of that, they've decided that they're smart enough and big enough to argue back with God. And they are. And so there's a savior in front of them trying to get their attention. And they want to argue that he doesn't have the authority to do it. See, in your life, you need to be willing to be honest with yourself to let God cut through your craziness. So that you can come to grips with what it is that you're created to be. Which brings me to the last thing. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, because in some ways, what I have described to you to this point in the passage is our culture. I mean, think about it. People buzzing about on God's creation, doing whatever they want to do just because they think it's best. They got their own agendas. They got their own religions. 
they got the religions that, that make them feel most comfortable, and then they find people that believe in it with them, and then they just shout, and they scream about it, and they get media coverage on it, and they just go nuts. I mean, the crazies are running the place, right? I mean, turn on the news. I had somebody write me a, a note this week and said, you know, I, I'm worried about America because I was... America just has to be diverse. And I said, people did not go to war so we could be diverse. People went to war so we could be united. And we can be united in the midst of our differences. Lose this diversity conversation with me, dude. Let's get this right. And see, we are upside down because the inmates are running the asylum in some way. Our culture is that temple setting that Jesus says, I'm going to rebuild this in three days. I can take care of this. Which brings me to the last thing that you need to see, and this is where it applies. What's wrong meets who's right. Verse 23 through 25, and I'm going to change gears on you just a little bit. I'm going to move out of the NIV into the New Living Translation. Some of you, that, that, that bothers you a lot just because you, you can't, can't follow along as well. So I'm telling you so you'll know, be able to go back and look at it later. Verse 23 says this, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem in the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about the human heart, for he knew what was in each person's heart. See, here's what we have to understand that Jesus understood. The human heart left to itself is overly selfish, it's unfaithful, and it's untrustworthy. And you have to come to grips with that so you can get to being unshocked. You've got to get to the point where you understand that about people, just like Jesus did, so that you can get on with being who you're supposed to be in the rest of the world, in the world around you. Jesus isn't a cynic. There's nothing cynical about him. You don't need to be a cynic either. Jesus is never scornful or hopeless or jaded. He understands how messed up the world is and how messed up humans are. And that's why he came, by the way, so that we could have hope. And he saves you and he pulls you out of the fires of hell so that you can have hope. So that you, in your brokenness, can say, you know what? I have discovered the source of truth and meaning and life. And because of that, I can change and I can help you. And then our sleeves can roll up. And we can get to work. But a lot of us spend way too much time being in perpetual shock at the nature of man. Have you ever sit around sometimes and go, I can't believe how crazy they are. Yes, you can. Why? Because you're that crazy, to be honest with you. People do nutty things. Do they do things that make no sense? Yes. Do they do things that make no common sense? There's no such thing. And Jesus says in verse, or we're told in 25, verse 25, no one needed to tell Jesus about the human heart, for he knew what was in each person's heart. See, you can spend your life if you want being shocked at how bad things are and how bad people are and how bad the nature of the world is. And you know what? Here's what I know about you. You're exhausted. I mean, you are absolutely flat out exhausted. That's not cynicism, that's just truth. 
because you know better. You know people are bad. You know they're broken. But we have a source of hope for tomorrow. And the great news is if we can get to that point in our lives, then and only then do things change. Because when you get to the point that you can look at the world around you and recognize how broken it is, then and only then can you do this. Then and only then can you marvel when humanity does get it right. Then and only then will you celebrate what happens within the walls of this church and the body of these people when we get it right. See, only when you get to the point when you understand and come to grips with the brokenness of man can you really start celebrating when humanity gets it right. And you will be astounded by it and you'll be amazed by it because the reality is the world is broken. Don't let that offend you. The world's broken. There are no good people, none. The Bible says so. People are broken. If there were good people, Jesus didn't need to come. Even on your best day, you're not good. Don't be offended by that. Don't let that offend you. Be thankful that God has intervened and he's going to make it right. See, be thankful when you get serious enough about seeing the world being broken and marveling at what God is doing, then and only then can you pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, because when you start looking and seeing how God's kingdom starts breaking through in little ways, then and only then are you going to be in awe of the fact that God really does have the power to change people. They can get it right. They can make amazing steps forward. His kingdom is breaking through, and that should leave us in awe. See, turmoil is not exceptional. Peace is. Worry is nothing to be proud of. Trust is. Decay is not exceptional. Restoration is. Anger is not exceptional. Gratitude is. Selfishness, not exceptional. Sacrifice is. Defensiveness, not acceptable. Love is. And judgment is not exceptional, but grace is. And when you can see the world for what it is, then and only then can you replace the shock with gratitude. So the next time someone cuts you off in traffic, don't ball up your fists and scream at them and say, have you lost your mind? Instead, next time that somebody lets you in traffic like they're supposed to and they're civil, thank God for the fact that, oh man, here's somebody who really gets it. Thank you for the goodness of the man that understands that they can do it. And if you find that one person on I-4, you have found the miracle. <laughs> and you need to thank God for it. See, you can spend all your life spun up and angry. And you're not living anymore. You're just doing time. You're just doing time because the human heart and the human condition makes it too easy to stay there. And the human heart and the human condition is not what Jesus came to do. Another movie that I love is the M. Night Shyamalan film, The Village. I love that movie. A lot of people panned it. I got it. It's a little bit dark. Sometimes hard to keep up with. But a great film. Again, a lot of spiritual undertones in it. The young blind woman in it um, 
is kind of the hub, the star of it. Um, later, she would run, run Jurassic World, years later. Um, but the founders of the village have sent her into the woods to face the monsters on a, a mission, if you will, to help a friend. And the founders of this village who've worked so hard to create this, pay, this space, this safe space locked away from the world, are now fighting amongst themselves and they're, they're actually arguing with the leader who has made the decision to send her. And they're having this argument about the reality of what they've done and the right and the wrong, and it's a pretty emotional scene. But then they drop a series of lines that when you hear them, if you pay attention to them, will cause your heart to stop. The leader says this about the girl they have sent. She is more capable than most in this village because she is led by love. And then he adds, the world moves for love. It kneels before it in awe. You know, God is love. And we need to kneel before that love in awe. Because grace is amazing and love is the exception and is exceptional. And my question to you earlier is still the same question. Can you be exceptional? Can you live that way? Because to do so, you have to recognize the fallenness of the world, be honest about yourself, but at the same time, then and only then are you ready to live life unshocked because then you can see the world for what it is and know how to navigate and follow the call of God. Gratitude and anger do not exist together. If you're angry, you are not a person of gratitude. They don't coexist. They don't fill the same space, never have, never will. You can't sell it. You can't convince yourself of that, and you can't throw a yeah button fix it. If you are angry, you have no gratitude. And if you are frustrated, you're not thankful. Because your focus is on what's not right instead of what you've been given. And we fight this battle amongst ourselves in the orbit that we live with, but one drains the life from you, the other fills you with wonder, you have to choose wisely so that you can become that person that you were created to be. Close your eyes, if you wouldn't mind. In just a minute, the band's going to come and we're going to sing again. But the question I have for you in this moment, right now, is simply this. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you where you're sitting right now to think of one thing that is right in your world. What is one thing that is right in your world? As you filter through all the stuff in your life and all the stuff that God's done and all the things that you've been blessed with, it shouldn't be a far stretch. But when you answer the question, what is right in your world, then you can marvel 
at that thing, at that moment, at that relationship, at that circumstance where it's gone right. That's God at work. That's God not giving up on humanity. That's God not walking away when he could have. It's the same Jesus that stood in the temple and cleared out the crazies and said, I can rebuild it in three days. It's the same Jesus that's called you to live a life that is different than the life that you currently have. Who you were last year doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you've been. It matters who you're going to be. And who you're going to be starts today. And so, choice is ours. Can we live unshocked and replace that shock with gratitude and understand that when Jesus gets bigger in our lives, everything else will fall into place. Lord, we thank you for what's right in your world In Jesus' name, amen.